from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, April 26th, 2018. This is episode 52, Danger Bubble. Welcome back to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories of the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm your host, Jason Snell. I have been your host for a year. We have been doing this podcast for a year. This is our first anniversary. I kind of can't believe it. My producer, Stephen Hackett, is here with me as always. Stephen, how in the world are we still here a year later? I know. You know, I've asked for a bathroom break like three times and you won't nope. let me leave. Not Can allowed. I please go? Mm-mm. No, what? hold it. Just hold it. <laughs> Hostile working environment. <laughs> We are joined this week by the guests who were the guests on Download Episode Number 1, which means they didn't know what they were getting into, but they nope. do now, and yet they came back. Lisa Schmeiser has been on many times. She is the editor at IT Pro Today. Hi. Welcome back again, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I love doing this podcast. Well, uh, we appreciate it because out of 52, you've been on 13 of them. So that's, oh, my uh, gosh. That's, that's kind of a lot. I had no idea. Yeah, that's like one in every four. Um, thank you. You, and yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, Serenity Caldwell, who's been on, you've been on like a half dozen of those. Uh, yeah. Hello, welcome back. I You're don't the- have Lisa's uh, Lisa's record. Thanks. You, you, well, you are on other podcasts as well, like the Query Podcast right here on Relay FM with, uh, you got some kind of co-host. Yeah, uh, some some guy from, uh, <laughs> from Tennessee. He's all right. He, he sounds like our producer. It's strange. I don't know how that works. And of course, Maybe they're evil twins. Managing editor at iMore uh, recently did that really awesome, I haven't gotten a chance to tell you, really awesome uh, review of the new iPad, including a video made entirely on the new iPad. That was really great. Everybody loved it, including me. So good job. I'm glad people liked it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, completely done. Completely done. And if, if there was like some little scrap of it that wasn't done on the iPad, I don't want to hear about it because I love that it was completely done on the iPad. So we're just going to go with it. No. The only thing that was not done on the iPad was the upload to YouTube because I was afraid YouTube was going to compress it. That's fair. And that's after the fact. You got a file at that point. You're, 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 yeah, you're not exactly. cheating at that point. That's The totally file fair. was exported and then sent via AirDrop. All right. So it is... <laughs> it's legit. I'm going to call it. It's legit. <laughs> okay. One year in, it's another week with more stories so we're going to talk about them steven and i chose them mostly steven this week i did some nodding and said yes yes steven yes that was good that's a good idea yes that was my role in this but uh let's start with uh messaging this is um a very interesting story which is why we picked it and put it first google making another attempt at a cross-platform or even beyond that messaging app you know google keeps trying to reinvent messaging and they tried Google Talks and Hangouts and Allo and Duo. This is something called chat. They want this to be standards-based. Unlike Apple's iMessage or something like WhatsApp, uh, they're basing it on RCS, which is a successor to SMS. They're trying to get all of these cellular carriers on board. The idea is that if you text somebody who doesn't have chat enabled or is not an Android user, your message will just sort of fall back. They'll degrade back to SMS. But also mm-hmm. like... Um, um, uh, those other solutions. Chat does not support end-to-end encryption. It relies on cell carriers who could turn over logs to authorities if pressed. Mm. It automatically will be turned on inside ad- Android messages and will be built into other Android messaging apps and even desktop operating systems like Windows if Microsoft decides to support it. Of course, Apple could decide to support it too if it wanted to. Um, I got a lot of angles here, but I actually want to start with the end-to-end encryption thing, because this was the first response that everybody had to this. was not Normally, I think, in a normal tech world, the response, number one, would have been a little bit of the Nelson on the Simpsons thing of pointing and laughing at Google for like its sixth try to do for Android what Apple did with iMessage for iOS. And, w- and we'll get to that, <laughs> but... That's not what happened. Instead, all the reactions I saw the moment this was announced were, how can you, in this era, hold up as your messaging system of the future something that has no end-to-end encryption, so every message that you send will be basically readable by whoever wants to read it in the government or at your carrier or anything like that. So let's start there. Is this like, is this a a blocker right away? Is this something that, and why would Google do this? Lisa, what do you think? I am 
trying to understand why they did it, period. I haven't seen any explanations or hypotheses that are like, well, maybe they just kind of there's there's business reasons why they didn't. I haven't I haven't seen that. And you're right that especially over the last two to three years, as we've seen privacy become more of a concern from enterprise level down to personal user level. And especially over the last few months, as we've seen increasing um, government attention paid to uh, the privacy of people's data and what companies can do with it. I I literally do not understand how Google could have decided that encryption and privacy were just things that it didn't need to bake into this at all. Um, it makes no sense to me. I can't figure out what the business proposition or the business value was or what benefit they could have discerned from deciding to go ahead to do with this. I'm honestly baffled by this. I, I am in very much the same camp. Uh, especially when we've seen, you know, when arguably Apple's biggest competitor, iMess, or Apple, sorry, Google's biggest competitor, uh, in the messages space is iMessage. Um, and mm-hmm. iMessage, like one of iMessage's biggest strengths has been it's end to end encrypted and it's in the, like, it's in the SMS app that we've now renamed the messages app. You don't really know whether you're sending an SMS or a, or an encrypted iMessage unless you look at the color. Um, it's all taken care of for you. And then I see on the other hand, Google, you know, doing 10 separate different apps to try and each accomplish different things. And then finally saying, okay, we're going to pull this all into chat because we see that our users primarily use SMS. Uh, but rather than, I mean, if you're going to, in, if you're going to use a new standard, why wouldn't you insist that the new standard be end to end encrypted? Like you have all of this power and everybody is so concerned about their safety and security and privacy. Like, I mean, if, if I'm being perfectly why, why honest, couldn't you, yeah. why couldn't you make it a competitive advantage? Why couldn't you roll this right? out with, we have a standard that is completely safe. Um, because and I'm sorry not to interrupt, but yeah, I I don't get it. I just don't get what why they did it. Ben Thompson at Stratechery, who we like to reference a lot here. I mean, he he wrote a piece this week that basically said expediency is the reason. Like this is first off, it is it is Google's sort of like b- back to the kind of open approach, <laughs> but the open approach for something like this is going to lead down this road, especially since the carriers don't want to play ball. Like the carriers, there could be an independent key repository somewhere because, of course, encryption is facilitated by the exchange of a public key that allows you to encode something that only the owner of the private key can uh, decode. And that is how uh, end-to-end encryption works, basically. So you need a, a a key directory somewhere that people can look up. Like if I'm sending to this phone number, what's their private or what's their public key so I can encrypt for them? Like, at, you know, know all of these end-to-end things like apple or telegram or whatsapp they are running their own server to do that so i guess the argument is that the the carriers don't want to do it getting interoperability between cellular carriers is hard enough as it is and you know google has this sort of like commitment to these open the, the, a completely open thing uh fair enough right but it is just mind-boggling now when you think about what the world is that we live in and, and the idea that they would just build a f- when when all of these popular services are, are are encrypted and secure that they would just come out with something and and you know not so many people have said it but it does in some le- on some level feel kind of like a betrayal right like like they're selling out all of the users by saying no 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 this is fine use this even though it's not like those other services this is the this is the uh, you know writing on the back of a postcard equivalent but what google's not getting and i feel like this is them actually not getting this what google's not getting is that people already have systems that they like and um people want or need to have compelling reasons to adopt new tools and, oh, your communications are completely insecure is not going to win anybody over. Um, I just spent the last week at RSA, which is, um, you know, the big security conference that the vendor RSA tends to throw on. And I sat through a lot of different keynotes and panels. And one of the things that kept popping up in a lot of the events I went to were all of the security professionals saying that, 
generations of mobile first workers have completely changed how IT has to do its job and what the security consider and what the security considerations are. But what they were also saying is that these people who have grown up as mobile as mobile first natives like they already have a really good idea of what they want in the tools that they're going to use. And so one of the challenges that companies have oftentimes is figuring out how to make end user security protocols work well with the stuff that they've already bought or had baked into their systems for, for 10 to 15 to 20 years. And I honestly cannot understand how on earth this is going to get any traction with any customer base whatsoever. Cause you know, people can look at this and go, are you kidding me? Facebook's WhatsApp is more secure than this is. Or, you know, what, what is my compelling reason for using this platform? If there's no way to guarantee it's safe, I can't use it for work. I can't use it for personal communications. Um, it doesn't reflect the reality of how I live or how I do my job. Um, it's nice that, you know, I mean, I feel like in this case, Google's like, we're Google, we can do this. It's, it's, you know, we're flexing our muscles here, but they're going to forget that they're going to get pushback. It's also a little bit of we're Google, we can't do this though, right? Like we keep, they keep trying (laughs) to do something that's like their own little home baked thing. And I, I think, I mean, Ben Thompson's point was this is where the open approach kind of falls down because in Google's universe, this has, uh, this is a solved problem and it wasn't solved by Google. And, and and so Google keeps trying to say, no, 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 here's the Google solution. and I mean, I'm sure there are people who are using all of these different things or have used them in the past that Google has suggested. But in large part, it, as a whole, it's been rejected by the user base. Like they're using uh, they're using other services. They're using WhatsApp for this. They're using Telegram. They're not using whatever Google has. So, you know, it, it, Google Google's kind of capitulating. But at the same time, it is it does feel a little bit like Google's just giving up and saying, all right, we're just going to try. You're using whatever you're using and we're just going to try to make SMS less bad. And uh, because that's all they, the best they can do. Stephen, you were going to say? I think there's a couple interesting points, too, that the RSC that this is going to be built on top of was pre-existing. Google is adopting this. They, they didn't necessarily like roll this out as their own technology. And it's something like a point a second ago that carriers will be on board and carriers really have to be on board for this to work. And so unlike... Apple with iMessage, who has said to carriers, you know what, we're going to use data instead of SMS and we're going to encrypt it so you can't see it and you can't turn over our customers' communications to the government or to your ad buyers or whoever. Uh, Google is is playing the game with the carriers in a way that Apple just refuses to. And I find that really interesting because Google is, as we've all said, very powerful. But in the same sense, Android is all over the place and they've got to work with all of these different players where Apple just is its own home base. And, you know, what they say goes on the iPhone, that's not necessarily true with Google. You have Android running with Google services, without Google services. You have uh, companies like Samsung that have their own messaging app on top of Android that you can use. Um, They're, I think, going for like a lowest common denominator here of like, hey, this is basically just like new SMS. It does some new stuff. uh, But all the all the tech behind the scenes is, you know, pretty similar to SMS. And I think there's like, we're just going to move the baseline forward because they've, they failed at it before. And what's interesting, something that hasn't come up in this conversation yet is that Allo, which Google uh, rolled out last year or the year before, um, also lacks into end encryption. If you have Google assistant on in those conversations, you can go into an incognito mode. So I could be talking with Jason directly and that's encrypted end to end. But if, unless you enter that mode, uh, even this thing they're replacing didn't have this. And so this has been the case for Google messaging services for a while now, but it definitely seems tone deaf in 2018. I tend to agree. And, um, you know, there's a really fantastic article from The Verge that kind of breaks down uh, what's going on with chat. And they do make an interesting point uh, that I want to bring up, which is that I wonder if if Android really was kind of and Google was really kind of smushed into this position by the fact that they waited so long to try and compete with iMessage in that arena, in the, oh, well, we're just going to build something into the SMS app and you're going to have to deal with it, that 
at this point, seven years later, carriers aren't going to take it because they've seen the damage that iMessage has done to their bottom line, essentially, right. and their ability to steal data from customers. So, you know, the in the question of, like, why is Google doing this? It may be, honestly, that they have no choice. Mm. That, like, this, if they want to be in the game at all, they've realized, well, our third-party messaging services aren't really taking off. So Hangouts will be enterprise. And uh, at the best that we can do is try and control what goes on with SMS and see if we can't get a share of the pie that way. Yeah. Apple is a, is a has come up a couple of times. And I, I see um, I, I've seen analysis that says, well, we don't know what Apple thinks about this. And then we've I've also seen analysis that says Apple's never going to support this. And I'm curious what what you all think about, you know, is there is there any incentive for Apple to adopt this as a fall, presumably as a fallback from iMessage, of course, or right. uh, or not? What you know, what 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 from from you, we all use Apple products um, in our lives too, like. Uh, this feature set, I mean, it's better than SMS, but is is Apple motivated to uh, to adopt it? I don't know. And one of the reasons I don't know is because I'm trying to remember what Android market penetration is in the U.S. versus internationally and where Apple is trying to grow its markets, because I feel like that's where your answer is, is at what point do they decide it's more of a benefit to them in emerging markets or markets that they want to grow? Um, I don't have the I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the the, the uh, shorthand would be uh, this is a service that for iPhone users would make the green bubble a richer experience <laughs> while yeah. still being a green bubble. I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the this is the thing is um, how would they sell it to end users? And um, how does it benefit them? Right. To have the iMessage fallback be a richer protocol that is dealing with other platforms. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand. I'm struggling to understand what the business advantage mm. is to them doing that or how it burnishes their ultimate market positioning, which as which which is as a fairly seamless and thoughtless. And I mean that in a good way, but a fairly seamless and thoughtless user experience where you just pop something out of the box and it already does everything for you. There's no customization. You don't have to worry about data security, anything like that. Honestly, I mean, maybe maybe I'm looking at this from too, too much of a broad perspective, but I see Apple just doing it behind the scenes and not even mentioning it because it doesn't affect them all that much. Like iMessage is going to stay on Apple services on Apple servers. I don't yeah. think that there's any any convincing that Apple would take otherwise to change that. Uh, but I could see that I could see it popping up in a WDC slide, right? SMS has now been upgraded to RCS because it's literally just for the fallback. It's literally just, yeah. you know, mm. it, it, we view this mm-hmm. as the next generation of SMS, and so we'll support it when you're trying to communicate with someone who's not an iMessage user. Yeah. End of mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not even much of a story. It's just well, okay, fine, we'll support it if they do. The only thing would be if they felt threatened by it in some way. Like it means that people are are. It's not a big deal to move. But I don't I don't see that argument. Argument. I, I think I think it's a stronger argument to say that the more people use this, then if they if if end to end encryption is outlawed at some point, that Apple is going to be forced to pull the plug on what they're doing. But again, I think that's more of a conspiracy theory than anything right now. <laughs> yeah, and there's also there's the there's the third option, right? There's the mysterious third option where Apple could just you know tomorrow or a month from now be like, oh hey, iMessage is available on Android now. And that would throw a whole different wrench into the works. It would right. be another third party app, but I wonder, I wonder how that might change the messaging community on Android. I like that option, but I'm, I'm again, I'm trying to figure out how it benefits Apple to do that. I mean, especially since iOS seems to be, or, or their mobile ecosystem seems to be where they're pushing more and more of their attention and, right. the, and, and their hardware uh, effort even. So. And, and iMessage is so sticky when you talk about people who switch back and forth a lot or have switched to Android. iMessage is the thing that people always say they miss. And I think I don't see Apple putting that on their competitors' devices because ultimately Apple makes software so it can sell hardware. expensive, shiny hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I agree with the idea that 
if Apple does RCS, it'll just be in the background somewhere. They'll, you know, it'll be maybe in a point of data at some point. Oh, we, you know, by the way, we support this now because I don't know the numbers. I don't know if Apple's ever shared the numbers, but I would imagine the vast majority of iPhone users have iMessage turned on. And those who don't have to be a small minority and you're not going to convince them by making SMS better. They should switch to iMessage anyways. So I, I don't know if there's a big downside there. No, it just it just makes the fallback experience better, right? It literally is just improving your green bubble experience when it yeah. falls back to that, which, you know, is uh, and it would still be, I, I assume, UI-wise, that's what it would look like, which is that's your awareness so. that it's not encrypted, that it's going to somebody who's not on iMessage. It's all those things. Big red bubbles, <laughs> like mm. warning bubbles. Danger bubble. <laughs> Well, um, it's interesting to see, you know, the Google, <laughs> the Google aspect of this. We've touched on it, but I just wanted to bring it up again that that I am fascinated by Google's inability to get this to work. But I, I think in the end, Ben Thompson's analysis is right in the sense that Google's support of kind of openness and it's uh, and and people rushing in with their own apps in order to fulfill this need that Google just you know Google got beat by its own developers on this and does not have enough power in um in core android stuff to to wrest control back from the third party apps um and also maybe doesn't want to try to steven's point of you know they want to they want the assistant listening on your on your text so that it can help but that means it's listing which means now it's not secure anymore and so even alo doesn't have it on by default so you know they didn't they didn't want to <laughs> and their customers seem to want it right so so there we go In, instead uh google is left kind of holding the bag and and uh it's fascinating to see a company with that much power. You know, it, it shows you that these tech giants, we talk about them every week. They aren't infallible. They aren't unbeatable. They have weaknesses and blind spots. And this is absolutely one of those for Google. Fascinating stuff. Um, we have more to talk about, but I want to take a break and tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Download is brought to you by Simple Contacts. It is pretty great when an app comes along that takes a tiresome task and makes it fuss-free. Simple Contacts does that by making it really easy to renew your contact lens prescription. You can reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. All you need to do is complete their online self-guided vision test. It takes less than five minutes from wherever you are. No more doctor's offices or waiting rooms just to reorder your existing contact lens prescription. You can order it right from the website or the app. Simple Contacts offers all the lens brands you love with options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. I have an astigmatism correction and some very particular kind of strange lenses that it took us several years to find. And uh, Simple Contacts has them. It's not a problem. You can order exactly what you need right from the palm of your hand whenever you want. The vision test is $20. Just for comparison, going back in to get an appointment without insurance just to get your same contacts again could cost you as much as $200. Simple Contacts will save you money and time. It's not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You do need to go and see your doctor on a regular basis for that. This is to make sure that your current prescription that you've already got helps you see 2020. They renew your lenses based on that prescription. They're not writing a new prescription for you or taking care of your eye health. Now, Simple Contacts, I used it. It was easy to use. Steven, you used it. It's like, you know, it's an app, and then you get your contacts that you already, that you're running out of, right? It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah. So, as a listener to this show, $30 off your contact lenses. That's right. You'll get $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash download, or you can enter download at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash download, or use the code download for $30 off. Thank you, Simple Contacts, for supporting download. All right. Next topic. This is, I feel like, like the topic of topics for this show, which is Amazon's gonna Amazon. <laughs> mm-hmm. We got two two Amazon reports this week. Amazon is all over the place now. A report in Bloomberg says that uh, the company's hardware development team is exploring the concept of domestic robots. Not much is known about the tasks these robots could perform. I'm going to predict vacuuming will be involved, but they'll be powered <laughs> no. by the the Amazon. 
Amazon Echo voice assistant and use computer vision to freely move around your home. Now, there are actually, I think, multiple robot vacuum companies actually have integrated the Amazon voice assistant technology already, which I I didn't realize because I don't have a robot vacuum cleaner yet. What is wrong with me? I call myself a tech enthusiast. How could I not have a robot vacuum? But I don't. Poser. Um, People say Amazon hopes to begin seeding these robots into employees' homes. Oh, good luck, Amazon employees, by the end of the year. (laughs) And potentially with consumers as early as 2019 if everything keeps moving forward. So, uh, you want an Amazon robot in your home? Steven? Steven, you're ready? Uh, uh, we talked about this on Connected yesterday, and we talked about, you know, things that it could do, things we wouldn't want it to do. And, you know, I think what I said on that show was like, you know, I like the Echo. I've got one on my desk. I have a HomePod over there on the other desk. Like, I like the voice assistant stuff. But this is something different than that. And I'm not sure that I want something that has a physical presence, right? Like, hey, robot, come, 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 come back here. I need you. I need to talk to you. Yeah. Right. Like the echo is like in the kitchen and I can hit the mute button or I can unplug it or I can throw it across the room. But like a robot is a physical presence in my house. And that feels like a very different thing and not something I'm sure that I want. Ren, you ready for a robot in your house? Mm, you know, <laughs> I love robots. I really do. Great. I have many. I have several robots in my house, um, but they're they're of the Sphero variety, um, and they can be turned off. Uh, and I, granted, yes, these robots could also probably be turned off. But I'm, I am feeling very wary about putting Amazon anything in my home. Honestly, anything, anything semi-intelligent. I just, I have this, this deep-seated fear of like a cadre of robots surrounding me being like, why haven't you reordered paper towels yet, Serenity? You should reorder this brand. For the next two minutes, my head is is an Amazon Go button. Press it and your paper towels will come. (laughs) Oh, you just bought coffee filters? I can interest you in these 10 models of coffee filters. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, in all, in all all seriousness i think it would really have to like what kind of domestic robots are we talking about because obviously we're not going jetsons right we're not we're not getting full autonomy we're not getting somebody we're not going to get a full size you know tower fan robot that's going to dust for you um so most likely what we're talking about is like you said vacuums and uh, i don't know i i just i have very little faith in amazon making a good robot vacuum cleaner. what else would it be that's the, i mean and forgive my lack of imagination here but i i, I try to think about it and like is it going to be a, a laundry robot is it going to be a clothes folding robot is it going to straighten <laughs> i mean quite frankly i will buy one i mean and this, this is what happens is if if there's a use case that hits you that's when you start to be intrigued it's like if i could have a robot that just sits in my daughter's room and and like picks all the stuff up off the floor while she's at school <laughs> i might invest in that robot it's true. Also, again, I've said this before in past shows, if a uh, robot would bring me tea in bed in the morning, already made, I would do that because my robot doesn't leave the countertop that makes me tea. So I still have to stand up and I I would uh, rather it's not. It's hard, man. I know. It's rough. I would rather not stand up before drinking my tea. So that's, but that's the question, <laughs> right? What are these things? And is it like the vacuum cleaner? Okay, that's a clear use case. We've had robot vacuum cleaners for more than a decade, I think now. But what what else can Amazon do? Are they, you know, I don't don't know are they letting like letting the cat out letting what what is i i don't know it's it's weird it's weird we should bring in the other story though because you're saying i don't know if i want amazon stuff in my house well guess what (laughs) amazon will also come in your house with the key service and leave a package and uh, the other amazon story we got this week is they will also go into your car because they've expanded the amazon key service to work with if you've got a car that's got one of these onboard assistants of its own like onstar or or Volvo's got one of its own. Amazon now is going to integrate with them for the same thing. So if you have a box that's coming from Amazon and you don't want them to put it in your house because you've you've got the Amazon key and they can get into your house, they can put it in the trunk of your car. It's such limited circumstances. Well, there's, like, a, there's, yeah. A, yeah, there's a lot of OnStar, the, 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 but the, yeah. The, the Mashable story specifies that the car has to be parked. Um, right. It cannot be in a multi-level parking garage. Mm-hmm. It can't be underground. Right. It can't be in a restricted asset. So it can't be blue. No, that's not true. It can be blue. It's it's a yeah. No, this is yeah. This is it's parked on a suburban street. Do you park <laughs> in an office park or do you park in like a giant 
mall parking lot or someplace, a, a giant open air parking lot. So, um, what could possibly go wrong with, um, a service that comes into this giant open air parking lot that has no surveillance whatsoever and drops pricey packages in the trunk of your car? I'm sure no one will ever stake out those cars <laughs> and break into them to get the stuff out. That, that will absolutely in no way ever happen. <laughs> Um, nope. you know, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that multi-level parking garages are necessarily any safer, but I'm saying you've already gotten to a point where um, you've limited your potential pool of people and you still haven't explained what the value out of is. I'm, I mean, I'm sympathetic. There's been a rash of package thefts across our island where some woman is running up onto porches and stealing Amazon packages if they're within view. And so people now have cameras and there's pictures of her everywhere. It's, it's turned into like a whole thing. And I can see all these folks being like, well, why not just have them delivered to my car? Because she surely can't run out to my office park in Pleasanton and steal them there. But you know what? Someone else can and someone else will. So, <laughs> so, you know, I, I appreciate that Amazon is trying to solve this problem by, um, positing that this is a security measure and a convenience measure. But um, I think we're going to see some side effects to this that uh, may not make it worthwhile. Yeah, I'm I'm completely on board here. I I feel like my my role today is just agreeing with Lisa. Uh, but <laughs> quite I feel like everyone's role should be agreeing with me. No, I am never, ever, ever, ever going to allow a service to try and put something in my car while I'm not there. Because as Lisa says, I feel like it's a great opportunity is like, here, package thieves, <laughs> look for these models of cars. They probably have Amazon things in them. Uh, but but also, this goes back to my initial uneasiness with Amazon Key when they first started talking about putting packages in homes, which is not every single one of these delivery workers is going to be reputable. And I... I I can wait, but I also am am waiting with bated breath for the first story of like Amazon key worker turns out to be serial killer or something along those lines. And I'm like, I just do we really need this? Like, has package theft gotten to a point where we would rather have people come into our homes or our cars rather than, you know, just walking to a store and picking the package up. Well, and here's another component, because this is something we're dealing with right now, is my husband's name somehow got sold um, or used. And we're getting a lot of unsolicited Amazon Prime packages that we did not order for all sorts of useless uh. <laughs> for all sorts of useless crap. Like um Android's phone screen covers. We're an iPhone family. Um, we got a set of yoga clothes in size small. Um, he does not do yoga. Uh, we got a giant nylon map of the world. We've gotten all, <laughs> like, we've gotten all sorts of really weird, really cheap stuff that was sent to us. Um, we're not paying for it. Our card hasn't been charged, but we're getting the stream of packages. And apparently this has become a common practice with a lot of um, Amazon marketplace sellers based overseas, where in order to burnish their profile on Amazon and raise, and, and raise their search standings, they'll ship stuff to Amazon Prime members. It's then considered um, like a legit delivery and um, a verified customer, and that boosts their delivery stats. My husband's been on the phone with Amazon several times over this. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll look into it. And I was like, honey, the they're making money either way. They don't care that you don't want this stuff. Like, it's our problem mm -hmm. to get rid of it. So if I were to open the trunk of my car and discover five packages filled with unnecessary crap I have to throw away, like, that would just make me even madder, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because at this point, you know, we're already, I already feel like we're losing control of the Amazon experience in some way. Um, and I, I can't imagine voluntarily relinquishing more, especially since Amazon as an organization is not that responsive in terms of customer complaints or um, customer care at all. And, and uh, it seems to me the more um, intimately tied to your domestic life they want to get from robots to voice activated ordering to physically entering your house or your car, they're going to have a customer service reckoning one of these days. Like that's going to have to come, especially since they've saturated um, a higher end retail market or higher end income markets. And these are people who are accustomed to being able to get satisfaction when their retail experience goes wrong. So 
it seems to me Amazon might be borrowing a whole lot of trouble with this. They haven't just anticipated or they, they, or they've calculated that the trouble is worth the cost of business. One or the other. One thing that does make me feel better about this than the Amazon key home situation is that, so this only works with late model GMs and Volvos and you have to have a, you know, on call or a on star or Volvo on call, like their service, right? So if you crash your car, then call 911 or all that sort of stuff. Uh, so there is a third party, not obviously not there. Like it's not like the OnStar guys like waiting next to the car with the UPS guy drives up, but th- they have to verify with that service. Uh, and that service is the one that unlocks the car. And so you as a customer, like at least there's a third party, like another level of verification there and you get notifications every step of the way and you can stop it at any point and redirect the package. So like it is strange. And I agree with you that there's probably some security risk, but I think for a lot of people that may be more secure than having it on their front porch. So maybe it's a trade-off some people are willing to to make, but the, the idea that like OnStar or like Volvo service is involved, like that makes me feel a little bit better that, um, there's like that, that extra layer of verification there or customer responsiveness. You're not just giving Amazon your car keys and being like, right. Go hog wilds. Yeah. It's like, is roll back the odometer, you know, like in uh, a Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just, it's eh. fine. If there is a theme of this show um, over the last year, it, like I said, it's Amazon's doing stuff. And, and Lisa has talked about it on a lot of different episodes too. The idea more broadly, <laughs> Like Amazon really is trying, it seems like everything, and then also even more things that nobody conceives of as anything, they throw those in too. And that is a theme. We'll get to some themes of the year in a little bit, but like that's certainly one of the themes of the year is that Amazon is trying to get into every aspect of everybody's life. And I would say American life because I think it starts here. But the idea is if they can figure it out here, they will then replicate that everywhere else in the world that they possibly can. And it is it is staggering to think of how many people have Prime. We said last week it's 100 million people are Amazon Prime customers now, an actual number re- released by them. It, it, the, the Prime market share in the U.S. of, of households is enormous. Um, and then you start to see, like, now they're, they, they've got, they've got uh, assistants in your house. They want to put robots in your house. They want to have delivery people come in your front door or open the trunk of your car. Like, there, is, there seems to be no aspect of uh, modern life that Amazon doesn't want to at least investigate if it can infiltrate. It's amazing, really. Yeah. All right, we will talk about other, uh, other, other big picture things of the last year, but first I want to tell you about a story you might have missed, something that flew under the radar but is probably worth mentioning. Stephen d- dug this up. Stephen, is it hot enough uh, down in Memphis for you to use your air conditioner yet? It is. It is. Not today it's raining, but tomorrow and this weekend it will be. All right. Well, air conditioning is a thing that happens in some parts of the country, just not where I live. And uh, Apple's HomeKit, which has been a little slow to get started, the flood floodgates are starting to crack open. There is a GE line of air conditioning units that now support HomeKit as well, of course, as the other home standards. Uh, the Amazon and Google Voice Assistants will work with it as well as with Siri. GE says users can turn the air conditioner on and off and adjust the temperature through the home app. Uh, so good news, everybody. Uh, maybe when that Amazon uh, delivery person comes in the door, they'll notice that it's a little too hot and they'll turn on the... Yeah. It's all connected, <laughs> I think. It's all connected. So, so Stephen, re- you ready for your uh, HomeKit uh, air, air conditioner? You know, like you and your T-Robot not wanting to get up. I have to walk all the way across my 200 square foot studio to turn my AC on. What? And I could just shout mm-hmm. at my phone. It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, I can see I can see the value right of like you're you're thinking, oh, man, I got to go out there, but it's really hot and not not in the studio, but like you're in the house and you're like, I want to turn the air conditioning on in the studio. And that's that's the goal of something like this, right, is you can flip out your phone and say, uh, you know, turn it on on a schedule or just say I'm going to turn it on now so that it's cooler when I go out there in an hour. Yeah, that's one thing I like about having the Nest thermostat is I can do that with my house when I'm not home and HomeKit you can have open on the Internet so you can do it from anywhere. And uh, yeah, it seems like heating and air is is. It's one of those things that like, most people have it in most parts of the country, at least one or the other, and it should be smarter. I agree. I agree. It should. Uh, I like my Nest, too, but again, it doesn't work with... I, in, the, in the summertime, I have a complex series of fans 
<laughs> so, you know, it's I can't. I, I could put smart switches on them, but it just seems like a bad idea. Smart switches don't work on a lot of fans, too. I have a co- couple of my tower fans are just completely foobar with the... Uh, with smart smart switches. Yeah, you know, a funny side effect of the smart home and smart switch kind of revolution is that a lot of um, electronics, home electronics, are being redesigned so that they resume their previous state when they get when the power comes back, which they didn't used to. Do. So I have a dehumidifier that that when you when the power comes back, it it starts from off, which means it can't be attached to a smart switch because the smart switch, when you flip it on, you can, you can have the smart switch turn it off, but you can't turn it back on. And I bought a new one and it totally just w- resumes what it was doing the last time uh, it had power. And I thought yeah, that's really smart because like that actually matters now. Um, it, it isn't a smart dehumidifier by any stretch of the imagination, but I can attach it to a smart switch and make it useful. And that's, uh, that's good. So that's like another thing you have to look at when you're shopping for stuff. Weird. What a world we live in. Okay, speaking of which, the year, a year ago we published the first episode of Download. The episode description sounds like it could have been written this week. This week's panel discusses the Amazon Echo look and the future of online retail. Our value as consumers when companies resell our data. And what went wrong with that internet-connected juice dispenser? Moment of silence <laughs> for Juicero. Oh, Juicero. Oh, Juicero. Oh, yeah. They died. They died. We've covered a lot of stories over the years. <laughs> Worth about talking about the trends. Voice assistants, obviously is a huge trend we've talked about those a lot we have we have your series and your your amazons and your googles and your microsoft's all doing their doing their thing i don't want to i don't want to say any trigger words so i i i'm being <laughs> apologies for being vague um and and i want to just go around like how integrated are voice assistants in your life right now we talk about it a lot but do we talk to them as much ren how 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 much are you talking to devices today uh, i talk to my home pod and my google home mini if fair amount. Um, the HomePod, interestingly enough, I, I've discovered its purpose, per, its perfect purpose, and that is to be a smart alarm clock for me. Uh, so it's sitting right next to my bed and it plays like insomnia music to like help me go to sleep and then wakes me up at a certain point and that I can ask it to remember certain things. It's right behind me for my off. Like I, I find that really helpful. Um, and also there's something really delightful about just mumbling to HomePod really sleepily, just being like, cancel my 7am alarm, make it, you know, make an alarm for 8.10am. Thank you. Good night. Uh, and uh, the, the other major one I use is honestly the, the Google Home Mini, which I only recently came into my life. I was an Amazon Echo hardcore user. Um, but in doing some digging on privacy policies and everything else, I kind of discovered that Amazon's is not, not so great in terms of, uh, in terms of data collection and what they promise they will and won't do with your data. And Google, although I feel like Google is overall the scarier of the two companies, their privacy policy on the Google Home Mini is actually pretty, pretty self, like pretty solid and self-stated. And so I was like, all right, maybe I'll use this. I'll try using this guy. And because of the way that the Google Home Mini uses its, um, it's smart routines, so you can set it to chain a couple of different actions, which is something I really hope they bring to HomePod um, outside of HomeKit automations. This allows you to be like, okay, you know, if I say I'm home, then either, you know, turn on my Philips Hue, but also play me, you know, play me subnet. And uh, then immediately after you've played the news stuff that I want to play, play this specific Spotify playlist. So I've been able to like build all these custom routines for my kitchen living room area. So I can come, you know, it like it basically knows when I'm waking up in the morning and when I'm going to sleep at night based off of like the commands that I'm using. So I don't know. I I've made peace with the with the weird creepiness of it all. Uh, but I but I really love those two. Like I I think that they have made my life a little bit better. Lisa, what are you talking to, if anything, in your home? <laughs> uh, I think we've established my deep deep distrust of um, Amazon Echo and um, other attendant home impli- appliances, just because I. I don't want anything in my house where I don't know 100% how they're using whatever data I give it, or I don't have full assurance they're not surveilling me anyway. Um, that said, a fun new dinner time game we have 
And that is probably the extent of the talking to assistants is we'll bring out Siri, bring out like, like she lives in a closet. Anyway, what we'll do is we'll load Siri and we'll load Google assistant on a different phone. And then we ask them each the same question and see how they answer. And it's been, <laughs> the loser you know, dies. Well, it's, wow. for example, um, yeah, well, it's, you know, questions like, what do you call, what, what's the collective noun for a group of jellyfish? Um, the answer is a bloom, by the way. And, um, you know, the, the Google assistant came right back with that. Uh, the first time we asked Siri, she came back with concert listings for Oakland, California, for some reason. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then there was, then there was, um, if you'd like to know more about private school tuition and so on and so forth. Um, so it's been really interesting as a family to sit down and and kind of compare and contrast and see what kind of answers we get from each of them. And um, it's been a good way for us to gauge the reliability of voice activated assistance as a whole. Like what is the limit of the usefulness and what is the limit of the information you get from them? But I am still, and probably will remain for some time, um, deeply skeptical to um, violently uninterested in automating much of my home until and unless I can feel as though I can maintain a lot of control over privacy, the amount of data that I'm sharing with the uh, automation providers, and when and how I can control and delete that data. And until I get those assurances, I just don't want to bring it to the house. Stephen, what are you talking to? You know, we've got an echo in the kitchen, and we use it and I would say, I'd say every day, you know, news, weather, playing music. Um, it's, you know, we've got a couple through the house and in the back of my mind, there's always, you know, the question of, of the, is more going on here than I'm aware of. So like, you know, there are times where we reach over and, and hit the mute button. Um, not, not really all that often, but, uh, I would say we use it on a regular basis. And I've got a home pod, uh, in my studio because I, cover the stuff and felt like I needed to experience it. And I use it for music in the office sometimes. And I use it to set home kit scenes. So I have a couple different scenes in my office and I use it for that because the echo has scenes and all my stuff, all my smart home stuff works with both the echo and Siri, but the scenes are, I think easier to set up in home kit. So I've kind of used, used it for that as well. But you know, we're pretty heavy echo family, but the little questions always in the back of my mind. Yeah. And we've got a, we've got a home pod for similar reasons. It's in the living room and then the, uh, the echo is in the kitchen and we have, we saw the echo show, which has some, you know, having a screen on it. I wish it did more, but, uh, it is nice to have a screen on it. It is one of these things is it's great in the kitchen. I mean, it, it is the best kitchen timer you will ever have, which again, it's probably overkill for what technology is in it, but it is really great to set multiple timers while your hands are full or covered in slime or whatever while you're making food uh to say you know set this one for 10 minutes set this one for seven minutes being able to ask it what the timers are with the echo show it will then show you the countdowns and all of that like it's it's i we use it for that a lot i use it for news and stuff occasionally i used to use the echo for for music but now i do use the home pod for that because it does sound better um and, you know, it only lives in our living room right now or our kitchen slash living room. It's kind of one big room. That's it. It's not in any anybody's bedrooms or anything like that. And I'm okay with that. Um, uh, it's nice to have it for some every now and then I'm sitting somewhere uh, and the we have a remote control for our living room lights, but it isn't always visible. It's under laundry or whatever. And it's nice to be able to say, hey, lady. Um, set the living room to 40% or 80% or turn on the lights in the living room and it'll do that. That's that's cool. Although it's funny, I was very excited about that when that feature when we got the, the smart uh, light switch for the living room lights. And the fact is, it comes with a remote control with actual buttons on it. And we use that 90% of the time rather than the voice. So there's something to be said for smart home tech that is uh, you know, an app or a physical remote instead of speaking. The sp- speaking isn't always the best answer. Sometimes it's good, but it's not always the best answer. Let's see what else. I uh, social media companies being terrible is another theme that we had this year. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that's continued. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we're good. I think there's gonna they'll provide us with more to talk about in the ongoing mm-hmm. uh, in the ongoing year. Um. I did want to do a little bit of a social media check-in. Are you using social media sites and how has your consumption 
change like facebook twitter if there are others that you're using i'm interested in that you know have you stopped some are you reducing on some i'm curious how you know how this last year has affected you and your social media use ren um well let's start with you okay well i definitely noticed that i have been using twitter a whole lot less than i used to be um and Part of that, I think, is the unwillingness to log on and see whatever insanity has befallen United States politics in that various day. Um, but a lot of it is honestly, I'm, you know, I already have a pretty busy life and I've been trying to really make time for myself when I have downtime not staring at social media and instead going into an app like Memrise to work on languages like language learning or to pl- to do crosswords. Um, and I found in general, it's just made me a lot less stressed. Uh, and I don't know, I it's it's a really weird feeling because I do still have spurts where I'll be on Twitter nonstop for like three days. Um, but it feels kind of like a junkie rush where it's it's not nearly as fun as it was. And I usually end up being end up getting very mad about something <laughs> um, on the Facebook side. Uh, I have to use it for Derby, but I have gone out of my way to basically strip everything non Derby related from Facebook. Um, and I, I don't even really post on it so much. Uh, except for the the derby page that I run, which is really just roller derby drills. Good luck marketing that. Am uh, good luck marketing that on Facebook. Um, but the Facebook in general, that if I think if we could, um, if if roller derby and roller derby associated groups could move off of Facebook without having to revert back to something like Yahoo groups, I think we would. Uh, because the data tactics at this point are just so gross. Like I saw s- several of my teammates have now completely like killed Facebook and now we're basically posting like we're back to email in some ways uh, for some of our coordination. And that's that is really impressed upon me how frustrating it is to coordinate via email. Uh, because things get missed and things get lost and, and not everybody hears about everything. So I'm, I'm looking at Facebook kind of in the corner of my eye as like, this is the, this is the evil that we have to live with until somebody makes something better. And I'm not thrilled about it, quite honestly. Um, other than that, I think that's, I, oh, I, I do use Instagram. I do use Instagram still and I use Instagram a lot and it does bother me a little bit, like, Facebook owns Instagram and there's a whole lot more they can mine out of the ba- the background of my photos than they ever could for my Facebook profile. Um, but for now, I don't know. I mean, f- mostly my Instagram is, again, roller derby related or like really random close ups of hair. <laughs> so hopefully uh, I'm I don't know. I'm taking the risk with Instagram right now. And that makes me frustrated because I I realize that I'm putting myself in a bad situation. And yet I'm still doing it because I like Instagram. Instagram makes me happy. Stupid Facebook. Less than 10 years ago, I read a science fiction novel where one of the plot points was that somebody was spotted um, because their face was visible in the background of somebody else's vacation photo. And they used facial recognition to mine everybody's mm-hmm. photos. And they found out, yo, you were in this place at this time. And like Facebook turned that feature on, I think, this year or late last year, where your face can be identified in other people's photos now. And yep, yep. that's it, it, not creepy com- at all. It's coming that. And when I read that, I thought like, well, this is possible. This could happen someday in the future. And it's like, yeah, well, le- how about less than 10 years? Like a lot less, like seven, seven years, six years later. Um, so, Lisa, what wh- where how's your social media use changed? <laughs> that's a great question, because um, I think the change actually began in 2016 or so, kind of in response and in reaction to what I was seeing people doing on social media in general. But I will cop to using Facebook a whole lot less over the past few months to the point where the only time I'm really on it now is if I post an update to the uh, page that I run for our Girl Scout troop, because it's been the most effective way for us to coordinate meetings, call for volunteers, share photos from last meetings, things like that. We keep the page closed. Um, But I had found it to be a really unsatisfying experience before, especially 
and, and this, this tech grudge goes back a couple of years. So strap in. Um, a few years ago, you used to be able to get an RSS feed of all of your friends updates, just your friends updates. And I loved it because that would pipe into Feedly. I could read what was going on with my people and then, you know, click on the link and respond to individual status updates. And it was in chronological order and it was my pals. And then Facebook got rid of chronological order as a default viewing setting. You have to go in and, and change that every time you hit the Facebook site. So that's that's annoying to begin with. And then there's all the promoted posts, or there's the the news articles that people share instead of status updates. And it's just a lot to wade through. And um, it became so unwieldy to use. And then of course, people or people on Facebook, and I found that very stressful. So as a result, I'm just not on it that much anymore. It's not part of a routine. I don't make a point of checking in. I basically go there when I have to transmit information. Um, as for Twitter, I'm on it when I'm avoiding a deadline <laughs> and I make a point. Yep. Yeah. And I make a point of not going on on weekends anymore. I don't do social media of any kind on weekend. And I even barely check into Slack, which is where a lot of my um, digit virtual socializing and, and workflow takes place at this point. Oh, yeah. And I feel like taking off the weekend from the uh, social media stream has been great for my ability to stay centered. Um, and it's, and, and I also don't do night Twitter that much anymore. Like it used to be where I'd sit on the couch at night after putting the kid to bed and, you know, Oh, what's going on with West Coast Twitter? Time to tweet, time to go through and read people's streams and things like that. And I've basically stopped doing that too. Um, at this point, uh, social, I'm trying to get to a point where social media is an information stream, but not a method, but, but not a, a means of socializing. And I also want to get to the point where I'm not engaging as much. And the reason is I've found that for me, having higher engagement in social media does nothing for my concentration. It does nothing for my productivity. It does nothing to improve any sense of self or any sense of well-being. So I'm not getting anything out of it that has any proven long-term benefit. And um, at this point, it's like, it's like my Diet Coke habit where I'm like, well, it's fun, but I shouldn't participate as much as I do. <laughs> and I can see it just winding down more and more at this point. I do have Instagram. I post there sporadically, um, mostly because it's just um, not a habit for me to think of my life in terms of uh, visuals that I want to upload and share and, and comment on with people. It's it's not a habit that I've adopted. And um, I have found that when I'm scrolling through Instagram, again, it's the same thing where after a while I have to stop and, and be like – is this really going to help my sense of well-being in the long run? Or is this just going to make me be like, why is my life not filled with backpacking trips and vacations to cool places? And so, you know, again, it's something where if I'm avoiding a deadline, I'll go on and see what's up with people. And if not, it, it, but if I'm actually being an adult and productive that day, no, not so much. <laughs> and uh, I don't Snapchat. So that's a social media outlet I've just Fair. never gotten into. Fair. Well, you're over the age of 18. Uh, Stephen, how has, how has your social media usage changed? I think the big thing for me is that I gave up Facebook um, actually pretty recently. So I had an account and unlike a lot of people, I, there's no one in my life I keep up with only on Facebook. And there's no there's like one group that was like pretty nice to have access to, but I have lots of friends in it and they send out like a big email with big announcements. So I feel like I'm not missing much. And uh, yeah, so I, I walked away from it and uh, it's been nice actually, not only because uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg is creepy, but uh, just less noise in life is good, right? Like, so like everyone else my age, my Facebook account was mostly people I went to school with who I mostly don't see anymore and who honestly, I mostly don't care about anymore. And uh, it's kind of nice to have that noise gone. You know, I still use Twitter less than I used to, uh, but it's still kind of ground zero for my social media stuff. Um, I still use Instagram. But one thing I've changed on Instagram, actually talking to somebody last night about this, is that I uh, most of what I'm posting on Instagram is work-related. So if you see me there, it's mostly like computers and iPods and, you know, random tech stuff. Uh, not very much about family life or kids or personal things. And that has been a very conscious decision. One, because Instagram is owned by Facebook, but, but two, and you know, 
like this is sort of my problem, not necessarily anyone else's, but like as my audience has grown, uh, I've done that across the board where I don't share about the family or kids nearly as much as I used to. And that is on purpose for their privacy. And that's something I will continue to be aware of as they get older. And and hopefully as my audience grows that I'm not going to share about them. You know, if they want to share about their lives when they're old enough, then it's their decision. That's fine. But I don't feel like uh, I need to be doing that on their behalf. So that's been a big change for me. Not necessarily related to all the stuff we've talked about for the last year, but that's definitely been an influencing factor in that decision, I think. Yeah. And I'm about the same way. Uh, reduced amount of... I still use Twitter all the time. That is where I, I, I kind of hang out, but I use it less than I did. I share way less than I did um, a, a couple of years ago. I was never into Facebook particularly um so i would go on every now and then i still go on every now and then i don't i my enthusiasm has dropped even more which is not i i'm not going to delete my facebook account because i it does connect me to a couple of communities that i'm not willing to lose but i'm not an active participant and the places where i have been more active i'm less active now because i i just don't enjoy the entire facebook experience or the fact that i'm patronizing that website i don't use instagram for a lot i i po i mostly post pictures of uh baseball stadiums or vacations that's basically all you'll get true on your baseball Mm -hmm. stadium ratio is very high it's very it's almost as if that's the only time i'm on instagram but it's not true i also go on vacation uh or you know to the beach or something or have a weird technology product to steven's point at at which point i'll post that but that's that's about it so um and uh, lisa mentioned slack earlier yeah a lot of the stuff that i used to share in public on twitter i share in private on slack communities now and that is because quite frankly you share things in public and it's not just about the feeling that you're sharing things that you shouldn't with a, a big audience it's that whatever you share you you know at some point the the chances of somebody doing something unpleasant with whatever you choose to share gets so high that there's no point in sharing anything anymore and that that is something that i'm constantly reminded by on twitter that literally i can't say anything on twitter without somebody being a jerk about it at which point guess what i stop sharing things and that's just how it is Uh So if I can interject for a moment, one of the things, in addition to let's make the uh, assistants face off against each other, another game that my husband and I like to play is let's see how long it takes for the whale actually to crawl out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And he and I will often tweet the same thing. And then we wait to see how many minutes it is until a dude pops up and mentions all, well, actually, and we're like, there it is. Whoop, whoop, there it is. You know, yep. it's fascinating um, being in the house with somebody who is a pretty active Twitter participant to see how little guff he gets in his mentions compared to what I get when we share the same stuff. And at this point, it's amusing, but it's also another reason that I'm disengaging from Twitter more is because I feel that by spending a lot of time and attention on a service that's made it exceedingly clear who gets valued. Um, for example, I'm still not verified. Um, the service has made it exceedingly clear who it values as active participants and um, who will be expected to catch a lot of guff compared to other users. And um, I feel sort of, you know how they say retweets aren't endorsements. I do feel that if you're tweeting, you are in a sense endorsing and perpetuating uh, a business model that works really well for Twitter, but actually actively harms lots of other people and irritates an even vaster number. And so I'm beca- I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I will say one thing I did do in 2017 that made my Twitter experience really nice um, was, well, besides continuing to mute people, I actually made a second Twitter account. Um, and it's a Twitter account that I use primarily for, again, roller derby Twitter. Um, but it's also become just talking to a very select group of people. And it's people who don't use Twitter for pretty much anything else except talking with their other group of people. So it's almost like we've been able to build a, a, a tiny Slack chat inside of Twitter. And it reminds me about, it reminds me of everything that I love about early Twitter, right? Where you're, you're literally just talking about like your shared common interests and your jokes and, and how excited you are for a tournament or like, or everything else. And I'm, it makes me really happy to, to, to be there in a way that being on my regular Twitter does not. Uh, and I, I do find myself using it more often. All right. Well, that is a lot. And, you know, the, the story never ends. It just keeps going on. So, of course, 
Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about whatever is happening next week. Uh, there's an Avengers movie coming out. Um, next week, uh, we're going to do download in live and in person. Oh, did I not mention that before? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. We'll have... Uh, a, a group of people. It'll be me and Steven and a couple of guests in person in an undisclosed Woo! location next week. So listen, that's how we'll kick off year two of download. But that brings us to the end of this edition. Serenity Caldwell, where can people find the stuff that you do? They can find me on the aforementioned social networks at Saturn, S-E-T-T-E-R-N, uh, where I talk about things technology and a lot of roller derby. Um, you can also find me on imore.com where I manage the edits uh, and also occasionally write about iPad workflows. Uh, and you can find me right here on Relay.fm uh, with, with Stephen Hackett. Yes, it is Stephen. It's not his clone, uh, where we do a <laughs> show called Query, uh, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions and occasionally laugh at our own stupidity. Very nice. Lisa Schmeiser, where can people find the stuff that you do? Uh, start with Twitter, which is just L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. And I pretty much link to anything I do there. Or go to itprotoday.com and I edit a boatload of stuff on there and occasionally right there too. And uh, Stephen Hackett, thanks for a good year of podcasts. I can't believe that it's come to that, but it, here we here we are. We did it. I know. Right back at you, buddy. Yeah. All right. High five. I'll, I'll high five you next week because we'll be in person. We can't really do that Perfect. over Skype so much. It's just like a little emoji and that's not the same. All right. Uh, we will be back next week. We will be in person. You will still get a podcast. It will sound slightly different, but otherwise we'll be perfectly fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. And until then, I'm Jason Snell, your host. We'll watch those headlines so you don't have to. Thanks for listening this last year, everybody. We appreciate it. See you next week. See you next week.